Chapter Ten of the Fortunes of Philippa by Angela Brazel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, A Picnic and an Adventure. Beneath the trees we'll have one day of frolicsome employment, and birds shall sing and winds shall blow to help us to enjoyment. The changed conditions at the Hollies, added to my long Christmas holiday, had completely brought me back to my usual health and high spirits, and I soon found the ordinary work of the class to be well within my capacities. Now that Miss Percy's continual nagging was removed I felt a different girl, and began to enjoy thoroughly my school life once more. Miss Hope, our new mistress, was one of those bright sunny souls who seem able to bring the very best out of all those who are near them. She made few rules, trusting much to our sense of honour and good feeling, and so well did we respond to her kindness that there was soon quite a different tone in the class, for the thought of grieving her would deter us from wrongdoing far more easily than all Miss Percy's threats of punishment. She had no favourites, but I think that Cathy and I, as being more interested than the others in the botany and natural history, which were her special subjects, came in for an extra share of her affection and I know we both worshipped her with that depth of devotion which schoolgirls are ever ready to offer to a teacher whom they really respect and love. As the summer came on, with the long light days, we were taken out more frequently for expeditions over the delightful Derbyshire moors. These Saturday afternoon rambles were looked forward to throughout the whole week, and we would return from them with such red cheeks and hearty appetites that I think Mrs. Marshall was amply satisfied with the result of her new regulations. We all felt it a decided innovation when she proposed a picnic, instead of the usual mild garden party with which we had been accustomed to celebrate her birthday on the 1st of June. "'It's to be a real, genuine, grown-up kind of picnic, too,' said Janet, "'not just going for a walk and taking milk and biscuits with you. "'There are to be five wagonettes, "'and we're to drive all the way to Redburn "'and have tea at a farm on the side of the Scar.' "'There's a glorious little wood there,' said Cathy, "'where lilies of the valley grow wild. "'Miss Hope says she believes they'll just be in flower. "'It will be perfectly delightful if we find them.' "'Mrs. Thompson at the farm makes the most splendid girdle-cakes,' put in Millicent. "'I know, because I went there once before when Mother took her Sunday-school treat, and they were absolutely delicious. You eat them hot out of the oven with loads of honey.' "'I hope it will be fine to-morrow,' I said. "'I suppose we shall go another day if it rains, but a thing never seems quite the same if it is put off.' "'Fine! Of course it will be fine,' said Janet. The sky is as clear as it can be, and the moon is new, and the little soldier is standing at his door in the barometer in my bedroom, and the cattle are grazing uphill, and the pimpernel is out by the gate, and Miss Bella's hair is in curl, and the midges are biting horribly. So if you can prophesy rain after that, Miss Philippa, you don't know the English climate, that's all I can say. I never prophesy till I know, I replied, laughing. But I think after such a list of good omens the weather could hardly, for shame, disappoint us, though I can't give the English climate much of a character after all. Janet was right, for the first of June proved to be a glorious day, bright and clear, with a cloudless sky and a fresh wind blowing down from the moors. Punctually at half-past one the wagonettes drove up to the door, and with much excitement we packed ourselves into them, Cathy and I, after a scramble with Janet, securing the coveted seats next to our dear Miss Hope. It was an eight-mile drive through the most charming scenery. 
The white limestone road first followed the river-bank amid beautiful woods, green with all the wealth of early summer foliage, and literally carpeted with bluebells, while on the far side of the river rose steep cliffs covered from base to summit with oak trees, the pinky brown of their opening leaves making a rich contrast to the dark pines which interspersed them here and there. Leaving the woods behind us, we wound slowly up the steep slope, between rough stone walls or banks of grass and firs, the great bare rolling hills stretched out before us, where the sheep were cropping the short sweet grass that grew between the clumps of sedge and rushes, and the larks were singing loudly and joyfully as they rose from their nests among the heather. Redburn proved to be a quaint little old-world greystone village, set in a dip amongst the moors, where it might receive some slight shelter from the bitter north wind which blew from the hills in winter-time. We rattled through its steep cobbled streets, making a brief pause at the church, where some ancient stone coffins and carved choir-stalls were to be seen, and then on again, over the mountainside, till we finally drew up in the farmyard of Ingledew Grange, where Mrs. Thompson, the farmer's wife, in a clean print dress and snowy apron, was waiting to receive us with many smiles and words of welcome. "'I'm fain glad it's turned out a fine day for ye, that I am.' she said. "'You'll be nigh clemmed after your drive, I take it, and more than ready for your teas. I won't be above a few minutes in mashing the pot, but if you care to take a turn round the garden whilst the cakes is a-getting out of the oven, you can go where you like.' We certainly agreed with her that the fresh moorland air had given a keen edge to our appetites, and she hastened to finish her preparations, while we prowled about the sweet old garden, where the little June roses hung white over the rustic porch, and the peacocks on the lawn below were spreading their glorious tails to the sunshine. We had tea at long tables in a great farm kitchen, the high roof of which had black oak rafters arched like those of a church, while the flagged floor was strewn with the finest white sand. Everything was as neat and clean as constant scrubbing and scouring could make it. The oak furniture shone with polishing. On a fine old dresser was spread out a goodly array of blue willow-patterned china, while the brightest of copper saucepans and pewter pots adorned the plain whitewashed walls. Millicent had certainly not overstated the quality of the cakes, nor the freshness of the large brown eggs, nor the sweetness of the honey with its delicious flavour of moorland heather, nor the dark barley bread, nor the rich cream which Mrs. Marshall poured into our teacups with a lavish hand. It was a real old-fashioned farmhouse tea, and we did justice to it with such ample country appetites that I think even Mrs. Thompson was satisfied that we had enjoyed ourselves. We dispersed afterwards in little groups for a ramble round the fields, and in the pretty shady wood which lay at the foot of the dell. "'Lilies of the valley,' said Mrs. Thompson, in response to our eager enquiries. "'Ay, there's a many of them down in yon clough. We call em snow-bobs about here. Ye can pluck till you're tired if ye've a mind.' "'Come along, Phil,' cried Cathy, and we started down the path between the springing corn, running for pure joy of the fresh air and sunshine, and snatching as we passed at the lacy flowers of the wild cornel which hung over the hedgerow like masses of snow. A broad brook flowed through the little glade, and on either side, under the shade of the overhanging trees, grew the lilies of the valley in such sweet profusion that the whole air seemed full of their delicious perfume. We ran here and there half wild with delight, burying our noses in the fragrant blossoms, and picking until our hands were full. 
"'Aren't they glorious?' said I. "'Simply perfect,' said Cathy. "'I want to sniff them all up,' said Janet, who with a few other girls had followed us. "'The fourth class are coming down the hill,' said Ernestine. "'They'll have to be quick or they won't find any left.' "'There are plenty on the other side of the water,' I said, "'if we could only manage to get over. I should like to pick a particularly nice bunch for Mrs. Marshall.' and I looked doubtfully at the trunk of a tree which had been laid across the brook to serve as a rough kind of bridge. There had been some attempt at a handrail, for a long pole swung from two ropes tied to the trees on either side, but it was of such a very shaky and insecure description that it would be barely sufficient to steady oneself by in the crossing. "'It doesn't look at all safe,' declared Janet. "'You won't catch me trying such a perilous path for all the flowers in the world.' "'I think I shall venture,' I said. "'The lilies look so much finer over there. "'Only mind you don't shake the pole while I'm crossing. "'It's unsteady enough as it is.' The round tree-trunk did not make a very firm foothold, and the swinging handrail felt the most insecure of supports when I started onto the bridge. I went along with great caution, one step at a time, trying to balance myself steadily and not to think of the rushing water below. "'Very good, very good indeed,' called Cathy from the bank. "'Don't hurry, keep steady, you're halfway over,' cried Janet. "'It looks easy enough, I shall come too,' exclaimed Ernestine. She seized the handrail as if to follow me, but the sudden touch on the shaking pole was too much for my frail balance. The rail swayed violently and swung away out of my clutching grasp. My foot slipped, and with a shriek of terror I found myself flung into the stream below. Luckily it was neither deep nor dangerous, but even half a yard of water is quite enough to get very wet in, and I was a moist and draggled object by the time I had struggled back to dry land. "'It's all your fault, Ernestine,' I cried wrathfully as I regained the bank. I told you not to shake the handrail, and you knew it would upset me. You're the meanest thing in the world, Ernestine Salt, declared Cathy, her cheeks crimson with indignation as she tried to wring the water from my dripping skirts. Don't speak to me. I never intend to be friends with you again. You did it on purpose, began Janet. I know you did. You're always playing sneaking tricks on Philippa when you think no one will find you out. "'You needn't think you're going to stay here with us,' said Blanche Greenwood hotly, "'because we don't want you. We didn't ask you to come, and you may go away and walk by yourself.' "'I've no wish to stay with you, I'm sure,' replied Ernestine, with equal temper. "'I would rather have your room than your company. I've picked all the lilies I want, so you're welcome to any that are left, so far as I'm concerned, if that's why you wish to get rid of me.' and with this parting shot she took her flowers and walked slowly away in the opposite direction to that in which we had come, by a small path that led from the wood up onto the moor beyond. "'You're terribly wet, Phil. Your boots are simply squelching with water. I don't know what Mrs. Marshall will say,' said Cathy, as she hurried me back to the farm as fast as possible to be dried. Somewhat to my relief, neither Mrs. Marshall nor any of the teachers was there— like ourselves, they were all trying to make the best of the fine afternoon out of doors. "'Deary me, who'd have thought of you falling into that bit of a brook?' said Mrs. Thompson, aghast as I walked into the kitchen in my moist skirts. "'We must get you out of those wet things, honey. I've some clothes of my Lizzie's as would fit you while your own is at the fire.' Lizzie's skirt was decidedly too short for me, and Lizzie's boots were equally large and roomy. 
Her stockings, moreover, were of thick, home-knitted worsted, very hot and uncomfortable, but I was grateful for anything in the circumstances, and would, I believe, have worn a pair of sabots if they had been offered to me. "'We shall just have time for a walk, Cathy, after all,' I said. "'It can't be very late yet, and we don't start home until six o'clock. Let us go up that path through the glen that led on to the moors.' "'Nay, don't go there.' called out Mrs. Thompson, who happened to overhear my remark just as we left the house. "'There's a bull up on yon moor as isn't safe at all. It do run folks sometimes. I thought ye'd been with the rest when I warned ye all. Keep in our own fields and ye'll be right enough, but don't go roaming far away.' "'Never mind,' said Cathy. "'We'll go back to the wood at any rate, and pick some more lilies, if there are any left.' We wandered slowly down the lane gathering the dog-violets from the banks, and having an unsuccessful hunt for birds-nests in the hedge. The girls were all gone from the glen, only a few dropped flowers remaining to show where they had been, and Cathy and I sauntered to the little bridge to take a look at the scene of my catastrophe. "'You see how the handrail shakes about,' I said, as I swung it out with a touch, and directly Ernestine took hold of it. "'Oh, Cathy, I never thought of Ernestine before.' "'Don't you remember she went up the path towards the moors? "'She can't know that the bull is there, and she's gone quite alone.' "'Let us run after her,' said Cathy. "'Perhaps, after all, she mayn't have walked very far, "'and we shall be in time to warn her.' "'Quick, quick!' I cried. "'Mrs. Thompson said the bull was so dangerous. "'Oh, we must stop her!' "'We raced as fast as my heavy country boots would allow "'along the narrow path through the wood, "'and over the stile into the meadow beyond, "'calling Ernestine as we ran,' but hearing no reply to our shouts. Among the deep clover and up the steep hillside we panted, following the plain direction of the path, till, clambering over the irregular steps which led across the high stone wall, we found ourselves on the open moor at last. "'Oh, look, look!' cried Cathy, grasping my arm. "'There it is!' And she pointed as she spoke to the summit of a small hill close by, where, outlined against the blue sky beyond, rose the enormous form of the great black bull, which stood there pawing the ground impatiently, and tossing his giant horns as though he were warning trespassers to beware of venturing upon his domains. Slightly lower down among the firs and the heather, and only about three hundred yards away from us, we could distinguish Ernestine's blue dress, and the flutter of the red ribbon in her hat. She was walking slowly along, stooping every now and then to pick a flower, or pausing to look at the scene around her, and evidently utterly unconscious of the huge monster which was grazing on the hillside above her. We called wildly to her, but the wind was in the opposite direction, and she could not hear us. "'We must save her, Cathy,' I cried. "'Perhaps the bull won't see us. Let us follow her quietly and tell her to come back before it's too late.' But the bull had seen her already, and with a low, roaring noise it began to move slowly down the side of the hill, snuffing the air as it went. Roused at last by the sound, Ernestine turned round. For one moment she stood almost fixed to the spot with horror, then with a wild shriek of fear she flung down her flowers and ran back as fast as she could in the direction of the stile over the wall. "'Stop! Stop! Don't run! It will be sure to follow you!' shouted Cathy. But even if Ernestine heard her, I doubt if she would have had the self-control to stay her flying footsteps. It was too late, for with a loud bellow the great animal was rushing madly after her down the slope. It seemed impossible that she could reach the wall in time. 
there was only a moment in which to save her, but I had read in books that a bull always charges blindly, and quick as thought I pulled off my jacket and dashed forward. "'Run, Ernestine, run!' I cried. "'Run, Cathy, the style, the style!' It was almost upon her, but even as it put down its head to charge, I flung my jacket over its horns, and, taking advantage of the few seconds of delay thus gained, I fled on wings of terror after the others to the stile. How I scrambled over I can never remember. I know I fell on Cathy and Ernestine at the bottom. We all lay there for a few moments nearly dead with fright, imagining that the bull would leap after us, but the wall was high and the stile very steep, and though we could hear its angry mutterings within a few feet of us, it was not able to clear so great an obstacle. "'Let us get away!' cried Ernestine. "'Oh, it's terrible, terrible to think that dreadful beast is still so near us!' She made an effort to rise. Then, groaning with pain, she sank back onto the ground and buried her face in her hands. "'I can't walk,' she moaned. "'I've broken my foot.' "'Go, girls, and leave me. If I have to die, I must.' "'What nonsense,' said Cathy. "'You're not going to die yet. I expect you twisted your ankle when you fell. You're quite safe here, for the bull can't leap a six-foot wall or climb up crooked stone steps. We'll go for help, and Mr. Thompson and one of the men must come to carry you back to the farm.' "'You go, Cathy,' I said, "'and I'll stay with Ernestine.' She'd feel dreadfully frightened to be left here all alone with the bull close by, although it can't get at us now. If you run all the way you'll very soon be back with help." Cathy started off at once at a brisk trot, and we watched her as she hurried down the clover fields and the meadow and disappeared into the wood below. I turned to Ernestine, who still sat under the wall where she had fallen, white to the lips, and trembling all over with pain. "'I'm afraid your foot's hurting you very much,' I said. Let me take your boot off, and I'll get some water to bathe it for you." I was obliged to cut both her boot-lace and her stocking with my penknife, for her ankle was already so swollen that she could scarcely bear to have it touched. I soaked my handkerchief in a little pool of water, and bound up the foot as carefully as I could. "'Don't cry,' I said. They'll soon be here with help, and you can lie on the carriage seat and keep your foot up all the way home. Does it hurt you very dreadfully?' "'It does hurt, but it isn't that,' sobbed Ernestine. "'You've saved my life, Philippa, and—I've been so horribly nasty to you ever since you came to school. I meant to shake that handrail today and send you into the brook. It wasn't an accident at all.' I stroked her hand softly. "'I don't think you'd do it again,' I said. "'It's all right about the bull. Don't let us talk of it now. I want to put another bandage on your poor foot.' "'But I will talk of it,' she said. "'I've been most disgustingly mean. I'll be very different to you afterwards, if you'll be friends with me. Will you?' "'Of course I will,' I said heartily, and I put my arms round her neck and kissed her. Mr. Thompson soon arrived with a couple of strong farm men, and between them they carried my poor groaning schoolmate back to the farm, where Mrs. Marshall was waiting, full of alarm at the chapter of accidents which had happened.' It was a painful journey home for Ernestine, and it was many weeks before her sprained ankle would allow her to walk or to take any part in our school games again. I think I was able to make the dull hours she had perforce to spend on her sofa pass a little more brightly for her, and she was grateful to me beyond words. "'No, don't,' I said, when she tried once to stammer out her thanks. "'We've forgotten all that old time. It's no use remembering bygones. 
We're going to start afresh now, and we'll all give you ever such a jolly welcome when you're well enough to come into school again. And so my last trouble at the Hollies had passed away, for Miss Percy's hard discipline had resolved itself into the genial sway of Miss Hope, and Ernestine Salt, who had been the one stormy element in my class, now wrote herself upon the list of my friends. End of chapter 10